something to it. So it comes in phases, you know. I'm, I'm Gary, it's nice to meet hey, you. Nice to see you. I love your picture there. I see you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That's lovely. That, that's, listen, Mary, yes. I am who I am. Yeah, I'm not going to make believe I'm somebody that I'm not. I am who I am. Yeah, I love it. You're born a peasant, Mary, you die a peasant. You <laughs> have to hang around with all, not John, because John is a peasant. Oh, you're, that's, yeah, right. Okay. No, because, you're, no, no, in, te- in reality, you're the most normal person I know. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. That's the nobility right? of your circle. Right, right. What I'm trying to say is like, you know. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, this is not the Italy, Italy high end. You know, I try to be Terry Gross intellectually. Maybe I don't come off. (laughs) See that you're born an Italian. If you want your life to be great. See that you're born an Italiano and your life will be great. From the moment you're a small bambino, you eat pizza, you drink vino. Then they make you roly-poly. You get stuffed with ravioli. If your mama's a paisano, you will have the world on a plate. So see that you're born in Italiano and your life will be great. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian American Podcast. I'm your moderator, John Viola, and I'm here with my partner in crime, the notorious P.O.B. Cavalieri, Professore, Avvocato, Pat O'Boyle. I got and a lot of titles, don't I? You got the best titles in the business. Really, I, I love them all. They're like children. I don't know. If I had to give up <laughs> one, I don't know what it would be. I think there's about 11 in total last time we, we took stock. I collect all these titles so that my funerary monument has a lot of stuff to put on it. Well, like I, my brother and I were in... Uh, we were in England in the fall, and I loved York Minster because it's filled with funerary monuments, knighthoods, coats of arms, and very detailed. And I, I, I took pictures of them all because all the inscriptions were in Latin. So when my time comes, I told my brother, I like this one, I like that one. Just you know, merge them and fill in the blanks. Well, let me tell you something. If planning your own funerary memorial is an Italian touchstone, I think that's something very in-tribe. Another aspect of who we are that I think most of us can relate to, especially from my conversations, perfectly positioned for a day like today, which is the Italian garden. And uh, when Pat and I started throwing around the idea of doing an episode on the Italian garden, I knew right away that I had to call Mary Minetti. Mary is a woman that I got to know in my time at NIAF professionally and have always had a great affinity for personally, a very charming lady immensely passionate about her project, the Italian Garden Project, and thankfully made the time to be here with us today to talk about the project and more. So Mary, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Pat, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really thrilled. I'm always glad to have a chance to share what the Italian Garden Project's all about. We're really happy to have you on here. And uh, we had some attempts at a recording session yesterday we've been doing these movie watch alongs through quarantine where we give people the option and people have taken it up in in droves i don't know why but they can watch a classic italian american film and listen to us as they watch uh and we had some massive complications yesterday and pat said enough with this we should be talking about gardening and i said you're right let's get on tomorrow let's call mary so that was a great timing can i tell you why yeah go ahead because a couple of years ago, you know, our friend Marian Esposito, the great chef, the Cavaliere, her husband, Dr. Guy, they have a beautiful garden, absolutely fantastic garden. And a lot of their plants are from seeds from Italy, they're Italian seeds. And a couple of years ago, um, I decided to maybe pot some things, some things I wanted to have. And I ordered Italian seeds online. And one was the Navigan Basilico, large elephant leaf Basilico. And the Neapolitan parsley, right? so parsley and basil from from Naples. And so often you just go, you know, Shoprite or Whole Foods, and you pick up a basil plant from a local garden store, and you just put it in a pot, and it's nice, it's great. But as all things Neapolitan, the Navigliano basil was just off the chart, and the leaves were huge. And you know, the Caprese salad is kind of like everywhere in the world now. 
But if you see the actual leaf that they use in that salad, it makes all the sense in the world. And the parsley, you know, parsley in America, it was decorative, right? But once I picked the Neapolitan parsley, which is a bush, it's so different than the what they call Italian parsley here. It grew to be a bush. I had parsley coming out the wazoo. And you used it. It was a wow. I was like, wow. And this is why I love having Mary on the show. Because having your own garden is fantastic. It's a home run. But having your own garden with Italian heritage seeds, it's just that, that gilded willow. It's just that one step further. It's that wow moment. And I think there's so many people out there who aren't aware. You know, there's so many. Italian seeds, heritage seeds you can buy online, stuff that your neighbor has, and they're just the next level. With that being said, let's let Mary explain a little bit about what the Italian Garden Project is to our audience. Yeah, well, uh, Pat's talking about it, you know, just that the feeling of growing something that you have a relationship to, that not only because of the flavors, but knowing that that food is, uh, you have a connection to it. So the project is about our connection as Italian Americans with the earth, with the food that came from the earth. You know, I really feel it's time to celebrate that incredible connection that Italian Americans can be proud of now, that we come from a people that knows the earth, that celebrates the seasons, what to grow, when to grow it. This is something that's so in vogue now, and, and it's so much a part of who we are. Yeah. And, you know, they may have been um, uneducated in formal education, but, you know, our ancestors, uh, I always say they, they could have PhDs in agricultural and earth sciences. <laughs> yeah. But they did. But they did. But they, Mary, I got to jump in here because <laughs> you set off the pedal bill library. <laughs> So just sit down and hold on because I'm <laughs> and this is what my feeling is. We have to change the conversation on this because as a first person having gone to college and the first person in my family to, to go to law school, there's this constant shift we have on our shoulder. Because when I went to law school, one kid said to me, he's like, Wow, it's amazing how far you've come considering where you're from. I was like, Oh, thank you. I'm so glad you allowed me to be in the room. <laughs> and I had Harvard and Yale trained professors. And my grandmother with her sixth grade education could run rings around that. Yet nevertheless, there was always this kind of like, oh, wow, you know, it's so great that you've come this far. Who decided I've come this far? Because they were really happy where they were. They didn't have opportunity. There's no question about that. There's a lot of people who could have had different professions in life. But I just feel that we're always digging out of that hole because our people are smarter. I'm not going to say we're smart. I think our people are smart, but that, that's just me. Yeah, that's what's so beautiful. We, you know, come far enough in our evolution, hopefully, as um, Americans, as thinking people, that that knowledge can be something that isn't necessarily learned in a university, that the wisdom of these folks, you know, our ancestors about the earth is priceless and, and needed more and more every day because we've lost that wisdom, because we've lost that knowing and connection to the earth, we're in, you know, heading for a lot of trouble as far as climate and our soil is degrading because we've lost the wisdom that they had. So it's so important that we sort of reshape our thinking about our peasant ancestors. I I really think we as Italian Americans have so much um, to be proud of with where our ancestors came from. But, you know, agriculture allows a family to be a family. Mm-hmm. There was a, I think it was, a, it was like a short film, and it lists a small Austrian peasant village, let's say from 1820 to 1920, and they kind of did these tableaus of how their life had changed. So you have a peasant family, and they're working the land. But at that time, there was no education, which was not a good thing. So the kids weren't going to school every day. They went to farm with their parents. And it had how close they were with their parents. They were with them all day long working on the farm. And then they have the kids becoming a teenager. And then he sees a train. is just being, I guess it's like the 1850s, 1840s. The train is being put into Washington. He sees the train going away to that faraway city. 
uh, Vienna. And he's like, ah, I have a dream to go to the big city. And he goes to the big city and it just shows how life had changed. And when everybody got nine to five jobs, his kids were not as close with him and his grandchildren were not as close as him because they weren't working the farm anymore. And he looks back and he says, wow, when I was on the farm, I knew my father. I worked with him every day. I was with him all day long. These kids don't know me. Yeah. And I think that the farm, the garden, what it does is, is it's the beauty of a family working together that builds those bonds and gets them to even know each other as a personality. Right. And it's also passing down of wisdom, one generation to the next. You know, you, you needed your grandfather's knowledge to survive. You know, now there's so much... Um, lack of respect, I think, sometimes for our elders, because we feel that their knowledge that they had doesn't help us in today's world. But it was it was a, a society where you look to your elders to help you, you know, raise a family, help you feed your family. So that wisdom passed down from generation to generation kept people in relationship, in, in respect as well. And I think there's a safety in that. I think there's a security and, a, and an opportunity not to be metaphorical when we talk about, you know, the, the soil for growth. But I think that soil for human growth and development, the safety of knowing, we talk about that obviously a ton on this show. You know, we did an episode when Dolores uh, announced she was expecting where we talked about raising a kid and we kind of stumbled onto the conclusion that when you lived with multiple generations of your family and cousins and aunts and uncles, Everybody was in training constantly to what it was to take care of a child because you had 10 of them and the older siblings took care of the younger or the cousins, whatever. And I have this sense in my mind continuously that we today take the internet and the abundance of information and confuse that with knowledge and wisdom. And I think the idea that, you know, you have these people who, I mean, I don't have any children myself, so I can't speak to it from experience. So I probably get some heat for this but you, know, you see people run to like nine thousand books on what to do and how to do it and this philosophy and don't let the kid touch the computer and the, and i think to myself well that couldn't have happened to my parents because my grandmother was in the house telling my mother what she knew and my mother's mother was coming over and you had a security of this has clearly been done before and here's the people who did it and here they are with me right we don't have that in so many cases anymore yeah, that admiration then for the generation that has the knowledge is yeah. beautiful. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing with the Italian Garden Project to not only preserve and promote this history and wisdom, but uh, to bring it to a new audience. Yeah, well, what I do to preserve this uh, specifically is visit gardens, uh, people who still maintain, often Italian-born, but not necessarily people who uh, maintain gardens, uh, classic Italian-American gardens, I call them. If I could ask you, Mary, or a listeners out there, because, you know, we're also blessed with a lot of listeners who aren't Italian-American. Can you just kind of give them a, an overview of what constitutes, what's the checklist that makes an Italian-American garden an Italian-American garden? Right. People often ask me that, and um, I think any of you would recognize it immediately, especially when you see other um, nationalities and their gardens. But when you see the Italian garden, almost everyone has a fig tree in, in the garden, in the yard, somewhere around. Uh, you know, that's a classic element of the Italian-American garden. Let me ask you a quick question. Is the fig tree like the number one inquiry that you get? Because that's such a part of who we are. In that, <laughs> the fig tree, it really it represents sort of a whole Italian-American immigrant experience and so many people resonate with that image of the fig tree that it's so much nostalgia is wrapped around that fig tree and people want to grow you know how to grow it they remember uh aunt and uncle a grandparent a parent growing that fig tree you know caring for it in the northeast um this mediterranean fruit either wrapping it with a five gallon bucket on top or the burying it so there's a lot of nostalgia around that tree and and rightly so that tree really represents being able to grow a mediterranean fruit in the northeast of the united states where it wasn't meant to be but the fact that that agricultural wisdom that they brought allowed them to devise ways to grow those trees and have them fruit plentifully and so it really is, you know, I always say um, 
the fig tree, it adapts and thrives in a land not its own, you know, much like the immigrants themselves. And people's memories of fig trees are phenomenal. They just can't tell me enough of the stories that are associated with the fig tree. And, uh, and I enjoy every one. Mary, I think the first or second conversation you and I ever had, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because this could be a false memory. You explained to me that most of the fig varietals in this country were essentially brought over with Italian immigrants. And we have the technology today, horticulturally, to actually sort of trace them to where they came from, right? Is that true? Well, we do DNA, actual you know, DNA analysis on them so that we can tell you know, what exact strain, because many, many of the fig trees, especially in the, in the north uh, and the east, came from Italy, you know, sewn in the lining of jackets and coats when they came over um, so that they were hidden because they often weren't sure if they would be allowed to, to bring them. This was decades ago. Of course, now today there'd be other issues with bringing them. <laughs> of course. Mary, I, I got the best one of all. Yeah. I know an Italian-American guy who wanted a fig tree from the Baez. And he had a cousin who was a nun who was being transferred to the United States from Italy. And he had her, this is a true story. I have to keep the anonymity of the religious (laughs) order. Uh, I've had this victory um, and of the gentleman, but he had the nun tie the fig tree to her wig and put it up the skirt of her hat (laughs) because he said, no one will ever go up a nun's hat. This was the days when they had a long time. And this this nun is actually still alive. She's pushing a hundred and she brought the Baez fig tree up her skirt of her hat to America. That's that's just... That just tells the story right there. Right. Those trees were so precious that that they would be willing to do whatever it took to get those trees here. They didn't want to be without their fig trees because the fig wasn't, you know, just, you know, we love the, the sweet taste of figs, but the fig really meant more to them than the, the taste of the fig. It meant self-sufficiency. If they could grow a fig tree, they could eat not only you know in the fall when the main crop ripened fresh or in the end of June if they had a first crop, so they would give them two crops of food a year, but they also remembered that a fig could be dried and eaten all winter. You slice it, put some uh, an almond inside, and you have a very nutritious meal. And, I, and it, um, several Italian-born Americans have told me sometimes that's all people had to eat during the war, you know, after the war. So for them, you know, it meant a taste of home and nostalgia, but it also meant self-sufficiency. You know, they knew when they came here, they wanted to care for themselves. And those fig trees really represent so much of who they were. And that's why I think it's just essential that we preserve these fig trees, the ones, especially that, that, came with them on the journeys to the U.S. That's why um, part of the project is our legacy fig tree collection. We are collecting fig trees that we know have been grown in the United States by Italian Americans for at least 25 years. And we try to get ones that we know where in Italy they were from and who brought them over and where they were grown in the United States. So the majority of our collection, which is uh, about at this point, 12 specimens have come from Italy. We even know the, the town in Italy where they have come from. And with these trees, we preserve the history of the, uh, the gardener who grew them. So we get an oral history from them. We uh, find out you know, where they're from, where they through that tree in the United States, and as, as much as we can uh, about the tree that is part of our legacy fig tree collection. And of course, their method for overwintering it, um, however that was, burying it or wrapping it. So yeah, we think this is an important part of our history and having these living heirlooms you know, I consider these our heirlooms. Our grandparents didn't have a lot of wealth, uh, you know, to, to buy expensive furniture or uh, China to hand down to us. But they did have these living pieces 
of history uh, that they are passing on to us. And I think it's important to save those for generations to come that don't understand what the fig tree means and don't understand how it represents who their ancestors really were. John, was it you that said it? Somebody said, it wasn't you on trying, somebody within our circle said that whenever they drive around urban areas of the U.S., they look in the yards to see if there's fig trees, even if there's no Italians left in the neighborhood. Right. Because that's an indication that Italians were here. I actually know of someone, they moved out of the grandfather's house into the suburbs, and then like 30 years later, they went back and someone said, I wish I had a cutting of grandpa's fig tree. And the fig tree was still back there. Wow. Exactly. And they went and they took the cutting. As a matter of fact, um, on my father's side, I had a cousin who bought a house and there was a fig tree in the back. They had no idea what it was. Right. Like, oh, this is this weed we can't get rid of. <laughs> it just keeps growing back. And they would napalm and get with every single solitary <laughs> pesticide. Yeah. And the Italian fig tree would not die. Exactly. Until I said, that's a fig tree. You can eat those. Yeah, that, that, um, I still have my grandfather's fig tree. My father bought the house where my grandfather had his tree. And um, now my brother bought the house. And the tree grows every year. And it, it actually, because we don't cover it now, this particular tree in, in that yard, it dies back to the ground every year. And then it grows up in a lot of runners. So now I can go each season and harvest these runners. And um, I've shared dozens and dozens of starts from my grandfather's tree. And I, of course, have one in, in uh, several at my home. But yeah, my grandfather keeps providing food for all of us 30 years after he's been gone. That's an unbelievable heirloom. Yeah. I mean, you use the term heirloom and you think about the nobility of the sustenance that, that, I mean, I love how eloquently you put this stuff. And that is one of the reasons amongst the many that I've always been so enamored by what you're doing and so admired your efforts. First of all, because the way you're doing it, I mean, these kinds of projects, cataloging trees, the sophistication, the science, the diligence, the dignity to it, there are things you read about other communities that, you know, National Geographic or Smithsonian is doing. And to have something like this in our community, First and foremost, it makes me feel good just as an Italian American to know it's there. And secondly, something I so want to share with the rest of the community because I, I feel like the more people get to know your project, I think there are many of them that would be absolutely thrilled to be able to participate. And before we leave, I do want you to sort of share how people can participate. But this heirloom stuff, I was in Italy two years ago, three years ago, my mother in law's ancestral home. My wife's grandmother is now 93. They decided to sell their house in Luca. It had been in the family for God knows how many generations. And so we went to close it up for my, my grandmother-in-law. And my wife was walking around the yard and she said, you know, she's not, so she's Tuscan. So she's got none of that attachment to the things like I do. I, I, I you know, we trade in our car and I got like teary eyed. Mm -hmm. uh, and she said, you know, I, the one thing I'll miss most is sitting under these grapevines. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of snuck off and, took off as many grapes. Now, I couldn't get a clipping. I couldn't bring it home, whatever. But I did I did take the seeds. I dried them and took them home. And I've been sort of saving them and looking for the right person to help me grow them. But, but to me, the greatest gift I could ever give my mother-in-law and my wife is the ability to plant that same grapevine in their homes. That There'll never be another Christmas gift like that. Oh, absolutely. To know that they're eating the same you know food that fed their ancestors. I, I think that's priceless. And that's why... Besides our, our legacy fig garden, we also have a legacy seed garden, which I just uh, finished planting. Uh, I planted over um, 20 different varieties of vegetables that I've collected the seeds from, from gardeners, Italian-born gardeners who brought them from Italy, um, you know, all parts of Italy who brought them to the U.S. And I feel honored to be the, the caretaker now of these seeds because I've found very painfully that when these gardens that I visit are no longer, when you know, they're no longer being gardened, that the seeds that have been planted for decades um, acclimated to the local climate and, and really uh, priceless, these seeds disappear. The kids, the, the, the children, they may not garden, they, you know, they take it for granted, just like I did with my grandfather's garden. You know, even though it, 
they see that the garden's not no longer going to be there. They don't understand what that really means. And the seeds disappear. And those, uh, especially with the issues of uh, seed diversity now, as we lose and lose more and more seed diversity, um, uh, we, they, they say we've lost up in, in the last um, 80 years or something, we've lost 90% of our seed diversity. Wow. Yeah, it's frightening. And sometimes these seeds don't even exist in the hometowns in Italy where they came from. Yeah. Because, true. you know, they came here and it's like the time capsule thing of coming here. Yeah. And so they've been growing them in, you know, different parts of the country. I have, um, uh, yeah, seeds uh, from Calabria, seeds from. Tuscany seeds from Sicily and, uh, you know, again, like I do do with the fig trees, recording the history of the actual gardener. You know, it's funny you talk about everybody kind of having their fig tree from their hometown. I can tell you in North Jersey, I remember well enough, people would swap fig trees mm-hmm. from different regions and they would gift it. So, oh, oh here, take my, take, uh, take a branch of my white fig. Oh, yeah, I have a great brown fig. Take this fig. Oh, this fig. Take this black fig, it, 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 it produces fruit twice, twice a year. Right. So, you know, Roe Walton talks about her grandmother makes the beets again because even though they're from Puglia, the beets again is something that you find 100% in Campania. And then, you know, Southern Lazio, which really is Campania, that was stolen from us and one day will be returned. <laughs> and parts of, you know, Abruzzo, Molise, kind of on the, the border of Campania and Basilicata, Calabria, you have the beets again. She's from Puglia. She's a bazillion miles away from the beets again area but she makes it because she learned it from when she came to america she was a seamstress in a factory and italians from different regions swapped recipes and in the same way i think the fig tree swap mm-hmm. was building italy right yeah and, yeah and it, it builds this 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 net of cohesiveness right right same thing with the seeds i see you know it didn't matter what part of italy but if someone was growing a, a beautiful uh, rapini that they admired you know, they were happily share seeds and it's just beautiful. So, yeah, you can have uh, um, like Cayo Simbula, a, a Sardinian that proudly shared with me um, uh, Swiss chart seeds that he'd been growing for decades and that they came from a Sicilian family in the late 1800s. Wow. So, yeah. So th- it's these are interesting history of, of these seeds and their connections throughout Italy. It's funny that you talk about the idea that we have varietals here that are non-existent in Italy anymore. I think I remember a couple of years ago, there was a New York Times article on that. And I remember it pushed me to do my research a little bit. And uh, I ended up stumbling on, and I'm going to forget the name of the group, uh, the, the Noah's Ark project for seeds and, and food varietals that they have. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a subset of slow foods. It's a part of the slow foods. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And it got me reading on so much of the diversity that's been lost in Italy. And I wanted us to talk about the regional varieties and and where certain things come from. Because at the end of this, I want us to sort of at least codify as close as we can a little bit of a list of a starter kit for the classic Italian garden. But my childhood and my Sicilian family and Sicilian friends, Caguzza was like the sort of gold standard of what you could grow. And I've never been able to really grow it. Are there any other kind of glaring, like if somebody's growing this, they are definitely from this region kind of things? Uh, there are certain certain things, um, certain varieties of peppers, say, you know, it's just typically Calabrian. You know, there's a gentleman, a, a garden I visited in Oakland, California, and it's typical uh, of his region. He just was so proud of these small red hot peppers. And there's, you you said your your wife is from um, Luca. And uh, in California, there's um, something called the bachi bean, or or I've heard it pronounced bachi or bachicha. But as I studied gardens in Northern California, I kept coming across this bachi bean in in Sacramento and in in different parts of the Bay Area. But it's one that that I'm I'm tracing back to um, a a gentleman in, in Richmond. Um, definitely traces it to Luca. So I'm eager to find out if any other Lucchese know about this bocce bean, that it's it's like a flat Roma bean, but it's actually, it's a, on the smallish side. 
but that is a, um, a typical one. And, and, and you see that in different parts of the, the country, you know, because the, the seed has been passed around in different regions of the country, like in this bocce bean that's been passed around sort of the Bay Area, the Stockton area. And then, you know, you might find a, a variety of tomato that's popular, you know, in New Jersey or something that came from, um, you know, a certain area of Italy. But it's really fascinating when, when you start to play detective with some of these vegetable seeds and try to really find their origin. You know, everyone has a story about where this seed came from, um, but it's really sort of to get to the bottom where the seed came from in Italy um, and, you know, where it was first planted in the United States. It's really, it's really an interesting journey. John, I got a good gabuza story for you. <laughs> what's that no it's, seriously and I, it goes back to, to so much of what mary's saying there was a farmer's market by me when farmer's markets first opened up and you know people don't realize this but new jersey is a garden state because the southern central new jersey we still have a number of working farms so a group of south jersey farmers uh, began to come to north jersey to sell their products because um a local municipality that wasn't um it's a blue collar town, so it didn't it didn't have kind of the uh, high end appeal that some towns in New Jersey had toward kind of like the farmers market. It didn't have that kind of uh, hipster appeal, so it's a very blue collar town. And farmers market opens and nobody goes. And a couple of weeks, it's just quote unquote dying on the vine. And then a local paper runs an article that one of the farmers in the farmers market is selling zucchini flowers and kabuts, the big huge six foot kabuts. <laughs> They were overrun the next week. It <laughs> saved the farmers more. So, you know, people associate New Jersey as a very Italian American place, but that the, the agricultural parts of New Jersey, they're still really what we would call the wasps today. And they couldn't believe they were overrun because when people came to buy gabooses and people came to buy zucchini flowers, they bought everything else. But had they not advertised about the zucchini flowers and the kabooza, that entire market would have died. And they, they talked about so many people who went back and they said, listen, I can't find a six-foot kabutsa in the supermarket, but it was such a part of my childhood. And I've drove and driven X amount of miles to come and buy the kabutsa. You know, I probably spent 10 times more in gas than I'm spending here because I want to eat, I want to make X, Y, Z dish that my mother made for my grandfather. And I have such great memories of it. And my grandfather grew these kabutsas. And if you think this is all at six foot, my grandfather, 12 foot one, and it's this, and it was that, and hanging off the trellis. And I wish I could do it, but I don't have the time. I don't know how to do it. I don't have the yard. I don't have the space. And it was so moving what a kabutsa could do to a community. You know, my grandfather, my Sicilian grandfather, grew up in a completely Sicilian neighborhood in Brooklyn. And I think it's safe to say Sicilian cuisine is one of the most distinct and the island grows many distinct varietals and uh, the cuisine incorporates many distinct ingredients. So when he and my grandmother retired upstate New York, they have a massive garden and my great grandmother lived with them and she was talking about like passed on wisdom. We had two trees, the last of which actually just died uh, from a blight and they were peach plums and she used to splice seeds together and was so proud of what she could create. And these, I mean, to me, that's NASA level stuff. This lady created a plant. But he and I are very, very close. And as I became older and started to cook a lot of my family holidays, I would make a huge effort to get the ingredients and the, and the, and the vegetables and fruits that meant a lot to him that he hadn't had in all those years and hadn't been able to grow. So I remember the first time we were able to find Carduna again and he, his description of it was, yeah, it's card I was a kid, you know, I'd say it's Carduna. It's like uh, the, the prehistoric artichoke. And so I would go out to all these American markets and finally the Italian markets obviously had them. Uh, but I think of the sort of tradition of, in many cases, almost foraging, you know, the things that we eat. I mean, my grandfather on my dad's side, when we moved out to the suburbs, somebody called my mom and said, I, I think your father-in-law is showing some signs of dementia. He's walking around picking weeds off of people's lawns. And my mom said, no, he's just getting salad. Uh, is, is there a tradition of that? And is there sort of a way to teach and pass that on? You know, I think of the dandelion leaves and the garduna and mushrooms. My father-in-law is always bringing home mushrooms. Where can people learn that? Well, uh, 
I've been doing foraging classes with our local chapter of Slow Food Pittsburgh. Um, we, we've done several seasons in the spring. We go out and look for um, the dandelion, wintercress, and the wild burdock. Burdock would be like a wild cardoon. It, it, we do a parent-child foraging class, and first I teach what to look for and um, how to pick them, and then how then we bring them back inside. It's our, at our local nature center, and then we have the kids wash them, clean them, and then we uh, make a, a, a dish of some kind with the greens. But um, yeah, slow slow food organization great for supporting that kind of, of program and uh, foraging. Foraging was such a huge, huge part of the Italian experience here when they came. You know, they uh, you know saw all that those dandelions growing everywhere here and <laughs> let all that free food you know go to waste. Uh, that free, very nutritious food. You know the biggest impression I had of the dandelions in Italy? When I saw you could just go out in a field yeah. and pick them. People just went out, Garduna, right. uh, all that stuff, the Chigorio. They would just go out. I had friends of mine in Italy, and I'm, I'm not making this. Like, they would just stop the car and just like, right. just go <laughs> sure. pick this stuff. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's where this came from. And they, the guy was a doctor. You know, people, I know, John, you always say, you know, people were so embarrassed when their grandfather was walking their grandfathers in towns across America walk around. It's like my big fat Greek wedding when the grandmother's next door screaming about the Turks. <laughs> right. And so many Italian Americans are like, oh, here we go again. There's my grandmother uh, picking the, the Chigoria in, in someone's yard. But um, this guy was a was a very extremely well-educated doctor at a high position in a hospital. Him and his wife pull over and they're, they're picking Chigoria. Right. And it gets back to what I was saying about the, the, the education aspect. Because Americans don't do that, we chalked it up to the ignorance of the peasant. But when you have a doctor with multiple degrees say, this is the Chigoria, you have to get it from this field in the middle of nowhere off the highway because no one has this Chigoria as good as this, you realize it's not that something based on ignorance or something based on you know the, the, the culture of an agrarian person. It's it's really based on on a culture of a whole country. Yeah. When the South of it, when you have a doctor who will pull over and, and pick the best Chigoria, to me, that's so emblematic because Italians always talk about food. We're married to food. That's our thing. You know, you have breakfast. What do you want to have for dinner? My, the best forager I know is my father-in-law. He's a doctor. And uh, he comes home with some weed from Calabria. It looks like a giant dark green opened cabbage. And mm -hmm. his friend has it and they find it. And you can only make it with potatoes because it's, it's uh, I don't know, Mary, if you know what the heck I'm talking about. But it's delicious. And I think to myself, I want to be more like this guy. Yeah. And that's what's so fascinating. I mean, the whole, you know, the whole slow food movement, you know, the urban gardening movement, everybody's trying to be like these guys, you know, it's, yeah. it's so trendy. I always say these folks are so old school, they're cutting edge now, you know, yeah. they're who we all want to be. And that's, you know, that's, we have a lot to be proud of. That's the beauty of who we are. That's the beauty. Mary, where's your family from? Give us your background. Like, did they go to Pittsburgh originally? Give us the 411. Right. So my grandfather, who I really consider the inspiration for this project, uh, he was from the uh, province of Caserta in a small town called Sant'Angelo d'Alife, a very small town. Were they in Beaverton, outside of Pittsburgh? No, no, no. Newcastle. 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 Did they have a feast for St. Margaret, Santa Margarita? Yes. Um, they and there was... There's another feast. Margaret's Parish. Yeah, a very Italian part of Newcastle. I've, I've been to Newcastle. You have? There, yes. There, there's a saint. There's an image of the Virgin Mary they celebrate in Newcastle on the Monday of Pentecost, and they're from Caserta. Well, Newcastle claims the highest percentage of people that claim Italian-American heritage in the country. That there's, I, Growing up, I thought everyone was Italian. <laughs> I loved Newcastle. Newcastle is about as Italian as it gets. It's it's a lovely place to have grown up. I wonder if that was my friend was working on a documentary about this, and I actually was in Newcastle. Yeah, there's so many Italians from all over. They have some of the oldest Italian festas in in the the, the Pittsburgh area itself has some of the oldest Italian 
Festus, Aliquippa. Um, oh, Saint Saint Rocco's in Aliquippa. Yes, yes, yes. My friend who's doing a documentary of the time Marshall he loves Aliquippa. I love Pittsburgh. Yeah. I love that part of Pennsylvania. Oh, it, it's it's great. It's a it's a big small town. You know, it's it's a big enough to be a big city, but everyone feels like everyone else's neighbor here. But that's Italy, right? That that is Italy. Even the biggest city feels like the small town, and all of our neighborhoods through in the enclaves throughout the country. That's the signature. You know, right? You knew everybody. You had nicknames for everybody. Uh, we have talked a lot about the ingredients and traditions and heritage that comes, but we really have not given everybody the two things I want to give them before we leave. First and foremost, if you had to pick sort of five starter elements, if you could limit it to five, to be in an Italian garden, tell us what those are. And we won't interrupt you. You mean five uh, vegetables that yeah. you plant? Or fruits. Fruits or vegetables. Okay. Number one, of course, is the fig tree. And uh, as far as another fruit tree, the Italian prune plum, in, in my neighborhood in Newcastle, growing up, every Italian family had the had the, the prune plum uh, was a classic. Um, and um, uh, as far as, of course, tomato, the, the classic tomato, but it's always best if you can get an heirloom variety you know, from Italy. Now, there's a um, two places in the U.S. you can get the Franchi seed straight from Italy. There's a website called growitalian.com. Uh, they're also called Seeds from Italy. They've actually run out of seeds this year. Wow. Yeah, I saw that. It's it's just unbelievable this year, uh, the interest in gardening because of, you know, the pandemic. People, you know, are understanding the importance of food, appreciating what food security is. So seed places have run out. So you can get great Italian seeds at Seeds um, from Italy or GrowItalian.com. And also um, my friends in Half Moon Bay in California the heirloom seeds for So I think, you know, you should have your fig tree, your prune plum tree, your uh, heirloom variety of tomato, some chicoria, you know, not just the wild dandelions, but, but grow some chicoria in, in your garden. Um, Swiss chard, that they, I don't know the name. How, how Vietco, I think. Yeah, well, uh, right, but but we call it Swiss chard. And I, I, it must be the Italian part of, of Switzerland because every, <laughs> every Italian I know um, loves Swiss chard. And of course, some variety of pepper, whether it's, you know, the, the Calabrian hot pepper or a, a great pepper. There is nothing so wonderful. It's just a fresh fried pepper. <laughs> You're not kidding. Mary, I got to ask you a question. You've put so much of your life into this. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is so important, especially with the fig trees. Have you thought of commercially selling the fig trees? I'm opening up like, you know, ItalianFigTrees.com because so many people, I know Casa Belvedere has an annual fig tree swap where people come from all over the New York area because they take their little sprouts every year that um, shoot off the bottom of a fig tree, they pop them, and then they swap them with their friends. Have you thought of ever opening up, because you have all this knowledge and you have this whole arsenal of, of different seeds and plants, of starting a business out of this, where we could go and we could order our fig tree from Mary? Well, yeah, that's in, in the in the future, I, I would hope, and I would hope they would be the starts from our legacy fig garden, where you know, you not only get the fig tree, but you get the, the history of that fig tree. You know, you, you can look on the website at the photo of, of the man who um, who grew it or the woman who grew it and, you know, where it was from in Italy and, you know, where it was grown in the United States. So the beauty of, for me, of sharing and dispersing fig trees throughout the country would be really connecting them with the, with the history. So, yeah, and there's a way now to replicate fig trees, um, the DNA, instead of starting them all from root uh, stock or, you know, cuttings. There are actually ways to take the DNA from a particular fig tree and start them in a laboratory. Um, I don't know if I, I want to do that, but you can start <laughs> multiple, multiple trees that way. Um, it, it's an interesting trying to, to blend an old world uh, tradition with the most uh, technologically advanced science. But yeah, I would love to um, use the... Um, fig trees to support the project in, in some way because for me that's a way of sharing our history with people and another way i want to get people involved in the project 
is we're starting a uh, uh, Italian American Gardener Hall of Fame. And um, it will be a way to both support the project financially, but also to, to create almost a database of Italian Americans in this country, where they were from in Italy and where they uh, gardened. Because so many people have that one uh, special gardener in their life that they remember. And in order to honor that person, I'm creating a um, gallery on the website where someone can send in a photo of that person, um, some information, and they can be uh, a gardener from the past or, or a living gardener. And we want to honor them on the website and uh, maybe a short paragraph about that person and then really understand the um, scope and, and the breadth of Italian-Americans who brought that gardening tradition to the U.S. What's the most unique aha moment you've had doing this? I'm sorry, what was that? Did you have a moment you're like, I just can't believe whatever you found, either seed or a plant or something that fascinated you? Yeah. The Al Capone's vault of, of yeah. your seed exploration. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I, just these gardens. When I go into these gardens, I'm just always amazed that I can feel like I'm right in Italy, in uh, Sacramento, California. You know, I can walk in a backyard and I'll see tomatoes hanging and drying exactly like they would be in Puglia. And, you know, the, the seeds, the same things they're planting. So every garden to me is just an exciting living piece of um, history. There's always something exciting and amazing in the gardens. Let me ask you another question. Like you speak of the project. Mm -hmm. What's the end goal in all this hard work that you're doing? Yeah, well, I want to make sure that the next generation knows this important part of our history. I feel almost a responsibility having one foot knowing firsthand the, uh, the um, immigrant generation and being a person, you know, living now a totally contemporary life that, that, you know, I feel that I need to be the bridge to bring this to uh, uh, the next generation who won't know this firsthand. And I do that through uh, photography, through videography, I mean, we've, we've now have, because of our work, we've documented and digitally preserved for the first time an Italian-American garden in the Smithsonian Archives of American Gardens. And we're doing others. We're doing uh, Nick Renieri's in Long Island, New York, and Vincenzo Guito in, in Oakland, California. So we are not only officially archiving this material on a, on a nationwide scale with the Smithsonian, but I'm also using um, the website and my own personal archives as a repository for this history. So just learning, capturing as much knowledge as we can while we while it's still available, you know, for the future generations of people that won't know this firsthand, like we are so lucky to have experienced. The hipsters want to become us. <laughs> That's true. But they don't know how to do it. Yeah. Well, this is a phenomenal way to share that knowledge. And I just want to point out before we close, you know, you talk about a gardening hall of fame, you belong in the Italian American hall of fame, because the fact that you have gotten something so near and dear to who we are, so definitional, acknowledged, respected, and now cataloged and included with the Smithsonian Institute, I, I, people need to understand the gravity of that accomplishment for us. So first of all, as an admirer, a fellow Italian American and a friend, Auguri, that is just a wonderful accomplishment in and of itself, beyond all the other amazing stuff you're doing. Um, tell our audience how they can participate, how they can help the project grow, where they can find you, and uh, sort of, you know, their way into this amazing work. Sure. I'd love to hear from people across the country that, that you know, that this speaks to. Um, I love to hear their stories. So I have a, a website where they can contact me, share something with me. It's called theitaliangardenproject.com. Um, under contact us, I can be reached personally. And if they have seeds in their family that they're afraid will be lost, if there's that special fig tree that has a beautiful history uh, with it, anything they want to share with me. And, and I travel all over the country to do this. So it doesn't have to be just in Pittsburgh or, or in New York. 
you know, I'm interested in, in these gardens all over the country. And uh, of course, now with our um, Gardner Hall of Fame, I would love to see all these lovely faces represented, all these lovely gardening faces represented on, on the website so that everyone can know what an important part of our history this is. Well, we will link all of the websites that you mentioned, obviously, including your own on the episode page. And uh, if you can't find Mary, you can find us and we'll put you in touch with Mary because this is a project that I just believe in so much and a, a person that I believe in so much. And maybe it's being home all these months now with my family and with my parents for the first time in 20 years and doing this stuff with them and, and the ideas on food and sustainability and the heritage. But uh, I don't know why I've just been so taken with all this recently and happy that we can have an episode like this at the start of, as Mary and I were joking before, the American growing season, because the Italian American gardeners growing all, all year round, right? But I want to thank you really so much for taking the time and leave you an open-ended invitation to come back and talk to our audience again and share where this thing is going. Thank you. I would love to. And I, and I thank you for helping me spread the word about the project. It means a lot. Well, I hope everybody out there is taking the advice of our esteemed expert. Go out, order whatever seeds you can. Obviously, right now, it's not the easiest time. But uh, if you have them in your family or your nona or your aunt and uncle's got an heirloom there, first and foremost, get yourself some seeds or a cutting and get to work because it's not going to be the beginning of summer forever. But these things and the byproduct of your efforts will last forever and, and be passed down from generation to generation. So from all of us, the Italian American podcast, Hope you have fun gardening. Hope you enjoyed the show, and we'll be back with you next week. Mary, I got so see that you're born in Italiano, and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italian if you want your life to be great. See that you're born in Italiano, and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italian. Oh!